the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Contest is presented by The Athletic, where it's Trevor Lawrence Day as the headlining story of The Athletic. Why not? I mean, we've got we're heading into week six of the NFL. You know, we kind of know who, who many of these teams are. And honestly, the question is now, who is tanking for Trevor? I mean, you know, we, we know the Jets are going down there and the Giants are going down there. We know the Jags will be sitting there at the end of the day. Houston's still 1-4. Which bad team is going to want slash need Trevor Lawrence at the end of the day? Because anyone who watched that Clemson game last weekend knows he is, he is back in form. He, he looks to be everything as advertised for that number one pick. So check out The Athletic and visit theathletic.com slash track for 40% off your first year subscription. My name is Mike Gennetti. We're going to be joined today by NFL Network and side, Dallas Cowboys sideline reporter Jane Slater. I had a great conversation with her. We, we got everything from, you know, the, the business of being a sideline reporter and a journalist in sports right now, and especially in 2020 and how things have changed, to in-depth Dallas Cowboys coverage with Dak, awesome stories about Jerry Jones, Zeke Elliott, all, all the nuts and bolts about the Cowboys. Make sure you check out that, that entire interview. Jane was outstanding. But uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't open up with some running back talk here. Of course, in the middle of the Bills-Titans game last night, the Jets decided to outright release Le'Veon Bell, which will become official today at 4 p.m. Eastern. Big news. And, uh, you know, the question immediately was, you know, how, is, how does Adam Gase still have his job? You know, what are the Jets doing here? Look, here's the only thing that we need to know. Le'Veon Bell wins. Now, he didn't win when he held out. Okay, that's $14.5 million he can't get back. But what he did get to follow that up is almost $28 million from the Jets for 18 games of work. Uh, it's a bad team. That's a bad situation. There was rumblings the second that contract was made two years ago that the Jets already hated it because they had just brought in the coach. They then fired the GM two months after they signed Bell. And the new GM basically came in and said, what are we doing here? You know, I don't want a $17 million inside linebacker. I don't want a $13.5 million running back. These are already black marks on our resume going forward. And we've kind of seen that. We've, we've kind of seen that with Jets. This Jets team has been in flux now for 18 months. I thought they overachieved last year in terms of their standings in the AFC East. They're certainly not doing that this year. Sam Darnold and the situation there is going backwards. The offensive line, the defensive line are a disaster. They traded their best player in Jamal Adams. So the team as a whole is in flux. They're certainly one of those tank for Trevor teams. Um, whether or not that means they move on from Sam Darnold remains to be seen. But they have moved on from Le'Veon Bell. So what does this mean? What does this mean financially speaking? Obviously, you've seen the tweets I've put out there over the past couple of hours here. But it's big-time dead cap. It's, uh, you know, it's not fun to release a player in year two of a, of a pretty decent guaranteed contract. He's going to get his money. There's offsets available even if he goes and signs somewhere else. And I'll talk about that in a second. But as of now... It's $15 million of dead cap in 2020 and another $4 million next year for the Jets. Now, that is subject to change. He's getting, uh, you know, he's got an $8.5 million base salary, of which $6 million is still left. That's what, you know, the next 12 weeks looks like for Le'Veon Bell. So it's $500,000 a week, essentially, on base salary that needs to be picked up if and when somebody can claim him or trade for him in the next couple of hours here. Like I said, it's not officially official until 4 p.m. Eastern. Wednesday, October 14th. So there's time for somebody to swoop in with a seventh round pick and pick up this contract. I can't imagine by any means that would happen knowing what we know now. So he's going to hit the open market. Let's say he comes back and signs for the veteran minimum, which is a million dollars and change, um, you know, prorated down to about $700,000 for the remainder of the season. So that's what we're dealing with. That's the offset we're talking about here. So, you know, you know, the fact that they've got to pay that they paid him $13 million, the jets this year in cash, could be offset by $750,000 to a new team. Does he do that? I don't know. You know, I'm sure Denver's looking, Houston's looking, maybe Buffalo's looking, Chicago's for certain looking. You know, Indy's looking, maybe Indy's looking now to, to pair uh, Jonathan Taylor with Le'Veon Bell. Some of these better teams, you know, Pittsburgh would be looking, but there's not a chance they're looking after everything that went down there. Um, you know, maybe Philly's involved here. They, they were in on Le'Veon Bell when it was free agent season two years ago, so... There's going to be teams that want this. You know, the, the 49ers are banged up at the, at the running back position. We, we know that for sure. And if they want to get back on track, this would be a splash move, but not financially speaking. You know, you, don't have, you shouldn't have to give Le'Veon Bell $2 million to pull him off of free agency. There should be one team, one fit, one price. That's it. 
let the Jets pay the majority of this contract um, because they did it. They signed this contract, and, and you're going to hear me talk to Jane about Zeke Elliott and that running back contract that really set that Cowboy situation up for a lot of bad news, uh, unfortunately speaking. Well, that didn't happen with the Jets because this was the only contract, okay? They had, like I mentioned, C.J. Mosley's ridiculous $50 million guaranteed inside linebacker contract, and then this one, and that's really it. That's all the Jets have been operating with here. They, you know, they've got minimum wide receivers. They've got minimum rookie-scale tight ends. A couple of offensive linemen ha- are getting a couple of million dollars here and there. Outside of that, you know, they traded their big first-round Jamal Adams contract, which would have turned into $18 million a year, which we'll see in Seattle probably next year. But they just they aren't paying. So this wasn't taking up, you know, too much of their cash and cap payroll. This was the only cash and cap on the payroll, essentially. But they punted on it halfway through the second year. And Le'Veon Bell wins. He gets $27 million to walk away. He gets his choice of a new team. And he gets to play on that team for the minimum salary and let the Jets pay the rest of his contract for the rest of the year. That's what has to happen here. That's what Le'Veon Bell has afforded himself by being on this terrible team and basically sitting down, sounds cordially, by the way, sitting down last Monday and saying, I can't do this anymore. Okay, I can't go out there and kill myself and be put into a situation where I can't even be my best self. Adam Gase clearly didn't want to use Le'Veon Bell. And look, part of it has got to be the contract. His 2021 salary, $8 million for next season, is injury guaranteed or was injury guaranteed. So if he suffers a torn ACL or a torn Achilles or something that keeps him out from passing a physical next March, well, that $8 million now locks into the Jets. So there is some gamesmanship with how they're treating this. Yes, there's per-game active bonuses, you know, $31,250 per game active going forward. So they'll, you know, they'll get rid of 12, 12 versions of those by releasing him right now. There's just a lot to go with it, all right? But they're paying him. They're paying him $13 million this year. They're giving him almost $28 million over two years. He had some injuries. This Jets team was not ready for a running back contract, but they could afford it because they weren't paying anybody else. I'm not going to knock the Jets. This was a playmaker that was on the open market. They overpaid a little bit for it. That's what happens in free agency. So I'm not going to kill too many people here, but don't tell me that the Jets won by getting rid of this guy right now. Le'Veon Bell wins. He gets to go to a better team of his choosing and still get, you know, $13 million this year from from the New York Jets. So, you know, if that's how we're, we have to look at this as, you know, why did we get to this point? We got to this point because the Jets didn't want to pay a running back anymore. And that's fine. They've got some young guys they want to bring in and utilize in their schemes and see what they have because, oh, by the way, you know, in March, it could be a bloodbath in terms of this this roster. They could be gutting everybody. And not that they haven't already started, but they could be gutting everybody. And is that the right situation for Trevor Lawrence? My goodness. <laughs> you know? Do you want no wide receivers, a halfway decent tight end, young, a young running back that we're going to see if he can, he can bring himself up the ranks a little bit, and an offensive line that is just terrifying? I, I, I don't know. I, I know New York's appealing for, for a guy like Trevor Lawrence, but you know that could be an Eli Manning kind of situation where, where – he and or Justin Fields basically says, you can draft me, but you better trade me immediately. We'll see. Lawrence is going to have that kind of control. So if, if the Jets are one of those teams down there, uh, you know, the Giants are a much better situation if that's the team. But you don't want to be, uh, you know, long for this Jets roster right now because there's going to be too many changes. And, of course, Adam Gase is going to go eventually here. It just doesn't make sense to move on from him right now. You know, you're not going to you're not doing yourself any favors or denigrating yourself at all by changing the coach position right now. It's just not that kind of situation. The roster just isn't available right now to compete in this league. They're not. And it's and it's absolutely terrible for Sam Darnold, who I think is a very talented quarterback. But, you know, in Josh Rosen fashion, I'm not sure he ever gets that legitimate chance ever again now, you know, depending on what happens next February. But that's that's what happens. When your roster is not ready for a high-profile either rookie or veteran quarterback, this is what happens. There's just no way out, you know, unless you're a guy who can put yourself on, you know, put your team on his back like Brady did for so many years with that Patriots offense. It just doesn't work out. So it, the, the window you're in and the roster you have and, and the draft assets and the plan you have to fill holes, right, in a staggered approach, which so many of these teams have figured out, matters so much to where your quarterback is. And we're going to talk about it with Jane in a couple of minutes here about how, you know, 
the order of operations that the Cowboys took to get to where we are now, where we're literally every single day talking, Dak Prescott, what's going to happen? Is he going to get paid? Is he going to get tagged? Is he going to walk away? You know, injury aside, that would have been the conversation even if he's playing right now. So, and, and it's because of contracts that were signed, because of defensive players that had to go by the wayside. You know, is your roster, is your team building window correct for either a rookie quarterback, you know, a high draft pick, a high top, maybe 90 draft pick in terms of the quarterback position or a $35 million veteran quarterback. A lot of teams are going to have that choice. You know, where's Dak going to go? Where's Matt, Matt Stafford going to go? Where's Matt Ryan going to go if, he, if they become available? You know, who's going to start Andy Dalton or Cam Newton next year and what kind of contracts do they see? Super interesting because when you combine that with Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, and these, these other quarterbacks who are going to have viable draft slots, you know, where do we go from here? Is this roster even ready for a move that we want to make right now? The, the Jets weren't, and this is the beneficiary of that. Sam Darnold can play football, but he can't play football when he can't stay up, and he can't play football when he's got average to below average weapons to, to, to throw to and to hand off to. So this was a, a culmination of a lot of things, but most off, it's we got to just get ourselves out of this, protect ourselves from the 2021 injury guarantee. We'll take the dead cap hit now, even though it looks bad on our, on our mark now, but we'll eat that this year. Save ourselves nine million in cap space next year, nine and a half million really after it's all said and done, which is going to be you know beneficial. They're going to have eighty-one and change as of right now to work with next year. That's going to be top three, based on what we're projecting for twenty twenty-one in terms of cap space. So you're going to be able to go and poach some free agents or acquire some players off of rosters via the trade, similar to how the Patriots are going to operate next offseason. You know, but if you're out on Darnold, then you're starting all over. The Jets maybe aren't ready for that quarterback next year. You know, maybe they are the Andy Dalton option. Maybe they are a a low-priced, second-tier quarterback out, out there. You know, maybe they go and get Dwayne Haskins and give him a chance here. But I don't think it's Trevor Lawrence or Matthew Stafford or one of those high-profile names that I've mentioned here that coming in to save this roster. This roster is too far below average to save with one player, even even at the quarterback position. So that's the deal on Le'Veon Bell. We'll make sure that becomes official at 4 p.m. I would absolutely bet my money that it'll become official and that nobody will acquire him via the trade. But those are the dead cap numbers. That's what's going to happen. It's a good business move for the Jets. And uh, unfortunately, signing him in the first place was the bad business move. Okay, let's bring in Jane Slater from NFL Network and talk Dallas Cowboys and the business of being a journalist in the NFL right now. Thrilled to be joined on the Hit Parade Hotline by NFL Network reporter and the co-host of the Boys and Girl podcast, Jane Slater. Jane, thanks so much for taking some time with us. My pleasure. How are you guys? Good. How, how, was, uh, how was life in 2020 for you these days? You know, I'll be honest. It's, it's been challenging this year. I think now, what are we, five games in? I feel like I can't keep up. <laughs> um, I feel, are we five games in? What is this, week five or week six? <laughs> We're heading into week six now officially, finally. Okay. I can't keep up these days. Uh, it, it has felt like that. I mean, it's, it's crazy that we're now into week six of the season when I, I can tell you leading up to training camp, there were people within the Cowboys organization who legitimately didn't think this was happening. And for me to hear that, knowing that this organization is one of the more optimistic can do organizations in the league, that there was this real thought that this year wasn't happening. And so you know, I think the biggest challenge for reporters like myself, um, when we go into the locker room after practice, while most reporters are busy with the large scrums, I'm getting a chance to talk to so many of the players in the locker room and really get a sense of where the mindset is, the buy-in, um, the health of certain players, and that has been taken from us. It is really hard to ask those authentic questions and get authentic answers in a virtual setting and the setting in Dallas has been absolutely maddening. Uh, we do it on WebEx and I don't know if many people have listened to the call, but it's like everybody jumping in on top. It, it literally is a virtual nightmare for those that are listening to this podcast and have their own business zoom meetings. Uh, it's even worse than that. So it's just, it's, it's been a challenge and particularly a challenge when there are so many questions about this team and specifically that buy-in as it relates to defense. And I can't get those answers because the new coaching staff is telling these players not to return report or text. So 
I never like to make assumptions, but I think if you pop in the tape, seeing some of the lack of effort, guys moving away from what this defense calls for, playing out of assignment, it gives you the answers you're sort of that you would probably normally get if you were in the locker room and asking some of these players. So is that the is that the most difficult situation to deal with right now is it kind of like the virtual post game and things like that and and obviously the lack of information i'm buffalo based here and i've heard the same that the coaching staffs have been really lock and key about keeping players and and coaches out of the media in terms of you know game plans and schemes like that even more so than ever has that been the biggest challenge or is it more of you know the sideline and and that kind of work that's sort of been taken away from you some somewhat yeah i mean i think as a reporter um you know the challenge too is when we go out to practice, we're seeing, you know, maybe 15 minutes and, you know, I'll speak just for Dallas. McCarthy's got his quarterback working out inside the bubble. Um, And so we're not even seeing what's going on there. Um, And then the other thing that's been challenging is this week, there's only one open practice. We should have at least two or three this week. The game is on Monday. Uh, He doesn't allow practices on Friday. Uh, open to the media and then doesn't allow them on Saturday. So the only days during the week this season that we're even seeing practice are Wednesday and Thursday. And so we find ourselves caught off guard when, for instance, cornerback Anthony Brown is all of a sudden activated off IR. You know, the team's announcing it. So for people at home, the listeners that are hearing this, this is just a reporter whining, but it is hard (laughs) for us to just do our job uh, and get a sense of things when we don't have access to the players. I mean, that is what our job is to do is to, ask these questions and get you answers. And a lot of people aren't going to do that up on the podium. I, I genuinely feel like I'm covering college football again. And college football was maddening to me for all of these reasons. So, I mean, our audience is big, big into sports business, really on a lot of broad levels here. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is, you know, are you getting the sense, Jane, that this is not going to be just for 2020, that some of these changes are going to carry through the day? And, and maybe to spin it a little bit more optimistic after, after you answer that, has anything been better in this current setup, in this changed, adjusted setup for 2020? Um, I would say my work-life balance has been better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm so used to, to traveling a, a whole lot more, obviously being at the facility more. Uh, I can't remember a time when I enjoyed, you know, morning runs on the trail or got my virtual workouts in at home. And, you know, there is something nice about working from home like the home office setup is awesome for those of us in tv especially when i did a game on sunday and it was a 16-hour day and i had to get up and do the morning show my commute was literally from my bedroom to my office so that was great um but it's interesting because i said this in years past a lot of people are shocked that us reporters are in a locker room with men that are not dressed and we're in there for an hour just hovering around waiting to gather information and it's so awkward with this me too movement and we talk about a a handshake is and how a handshake can be inappropriate or a a hug and yet my job consists of full-on nudity to gather information for my job so that's always been odd to me and when I brought it up you know beat reporters just would get so upset like Jane you can't even like you know, push that down the line because of just this very thing. Now, I would argue that you could still be productive without having locker room access. In other words, at training camp, we're grabbing guys as they're coming off the football field, right? And so the mandate should be if a reporter comes up to you, you have to talk. Um, No different than, and you can decline to talk, but you have to at least allow them the opportunity and we should be able to request a, a player. But training camp, we do it that way and I get plenty of information in that capacity. So I don't know. I do think that there is going to be, especially with, I was just at my doctor yesterday getting my flu shot and actually had an antibody test just because I was just curious. And I've done, I'm doing another Thursday night football game and I do get tested there. I don't get tested in Dallas. Um, So the protocols have been a little different, but we're not allowed any access to players, nor are we, I don't really spend any time in the facility. I walk, through the building to go to practice for 15 minutes. And then I do all my live shots outside. Um, and then we're wearing masks until I go on camera and then masks go back on. So they're not testing in Dallas the way they are at, at, at I think some 
some places are still doing pretty vigorous testing for reporters. Uh, I don't know. I can only speak to my beat. Um, but yeah, I mean, my doctor told me, he was like, you know, I don't think you guys realize that this is, you're probably going to be dealing with this again next year. And I, you know, living in Texas, for the most part, most of our bars were able to change their license to restaurants. So it was kind of this weird loophole. And a lot of the bars and restaurants have been acting as if here in Dallas and our morbidity rate has been incredibly low. Uh, our hospitals have not been overwhelmed. You know, there's traffic on the highways now. I think I saw Houston was like their return to the offices was ridiculous, like their percentage wise. So I don't want to unfairly quote that, but it does feel like business is as usual here in Texas, minus the fact that we do have the mask mandate and we all wear our mask and of course, you know, you try to limit exposure. But when he said that to me, it was almost sort of like, man, I thought we had a light at the end of the tunnel. I was kind of deflated when my doctor told me that because he also said, you know, when you get your COVID shot, there was a thought that you're going to need to get stuck twice. Otherwise, you're going to need a booster shot for this. And how do you distribute that? And he's like, there's just going to be a lot of considerations for this. And mind you, this is the same doctor that I saw right when I came back from Combine right when I got back from anchoring Good Morning Football, and there had only been one case in Westchester County, and I was, like, sort of freaking out uh, and taking it really serious in the beginning, like bleaching my shoes when I left my house and wearing gloves at Target, and people thought I was insane. And I sort of eased up, I guess. Not eased up. I mean, I'm still vigilant, but like I said, it's just a different, it's just a different world here in the Dallas area. But he's the one that sort of tightened up a little bit. He's like, we just, we know more information, Jane. He was like, this isn't like the flu where we know what the symptoms are. It was like, this thing presents so many different ways. There's, it is so highly contagious. Um, and so he's just, there's, he's like, that's the hard part about this thing. And so not to get into this whole, like, I certainly don't have a medical degree and full disclaimer on that. It's just, as a reporter, when you're sitting there going, man, this season has had all sorts of challenges to sit in your doctor's office. And have them be like, well, but wait, we might be doing this next season. You just kind of find yourself going, all right, this is not a sprint. This is going to be a marathon. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be at least a two-year hiatus from a lot of normalcy. You know, we'll see what happens with the fan situation. Hopefully that improves. Obviously, everything you're saying, I completely agree with, by the way. feels like there's hills and valleys, and you don't really know what to do at any moment. So it's kind of good to have professionals talking you in one direction sometimes. You mentioned, you know, jokingly your degree. How did you get involved in all this? I mean, if you wouldn't mind kind of speaking to how you your upbringing a little bit and, and how you got to where you are, which is an extremely busy person. I mean, you are, you are all over the place. I feel like you're doing live hits every hour. Uh, how did you get to where you are right now, Jane? So it's fascinating. When I was growing up, my dad hates when I say this. In fact, he said this to me yesterday. He's like, I hate when you say we weren't a sports house. We watch Cowboys on Sundays. And, you know, I grew up here in, in the Dallas area. I said, Dad, we watched sports on Sundays, but it was literally only Cowboys games. Like, I dragged him, you know, to baseball games and begged him to play soccer, and, you know, he wasn't about it. Him and my mom liked their weekends. And so, growing up in our house, though, my dad was the biggest news junkie. Like, news was on 24-7, and we even had a bird growing up named Scud because we watched so much CNN coverage of uh, the Iraq War that Scud would literally make the sound. And so, uh, I mean, that's just how much news was in our house. And then, of course, now my dad's gravitated towards Fox. And you get in his pickup truck here in Texas, it's Fox. He's got a TV in every room, and he's got it in his garage, and he's got it on the patio. It's like the guy like lives and breathes news. And so, growing up, I was just a news junkie. So I went off to college with the goal of really being the next Christian Amanpour, I was obsessed with Laura Logan from 60 Minutes. I loved Andrea Kramer on Real Sports. Just really, I loved journalism. I loved telling stories. I loved how people would humanize. I mean, even Laura Logan's, uh, when she was embedded with the Taliban, which was fascinating to me, you know, because we had vilified them so much in the U.S. and rightfully so, but here she was getting access um, and just getting people to trust her with their story. And um, I, I just thought it was fascinating. And then, of course, I was a huge fan of Dana Perino's. Liz Carpenter was someone that I spent time with at the University of Texas. I double majored in poli-sci and uh, journalism. And I just was always like politics and news was was where I was headed. I mean, I liked sports, but it was sort of like 
I'd watch the Melissa Starks and, and stuff on Sundays, but I honestly thought that that was just not something I would ever be good at. I just didn't know enough about it. And so then I went off to the University of Texas, and of course, hmm. our baseball team, uh, that was the Houston Street era, and they were going to the College World Series, and of course, we had Vince Young, Major Applewhite, Kristen, uh, Ricky Williams, and my high school just didn't have, even though we were Garland 5A, uh, we were a relatively new school, so our team was pretty terrible, and I spent most of my time in journalism and choir and drill teams, so it just wasn't my thing. Um, but Bill Little was this amazing sports writer at Texas and would write these amazing pieces that just humanized and made you feel like you were there for these these moments. And I loved that it was just this, the fact that these kids could come from some of the worst places and create their destiny. And some people are gifted with these raw abilities. And I, I just, I loved it. So I didn't really know if I was going to do sports or news. I just knew I wanted to deliver information. I wanted to tell stories. And when I first started off um, doing this, I, I was terrible. I mean, I sent out 50 resume tapes at the time. They were VHS tapes everywhere from Bangor, Maine to you name it. And no one would hire me. So my first job was um, working for Carol D News Radio, Canadian Dallas. So I did advertising sales. Um, and I would watch A-Rod take VP at the ballpark in Arlington, which is where the office was. And I'm listening to, you know, Dallas Cowboys radio and, uh, sports talk and just going, wow, like I'm selling ad space for something I went to college for. This isn't it. Right. So I just kept banging on the door and finally got a job at a CBS startup in Tyler, Texas. And it was typically when you're a new reporter, you start in a, um, newsroom where, there's a lot of veterans and you might be, there might be one or two of you that are, you know, literally right out of college. This was literally my student broadcast show. Like that's how young all of us were. And I remember my first job being a producer, learning to back time and stack a show like while I had the job. So it was like on the job training for in life television that matter. And even back then I was telling a girlfriend about this the other day for election results, we were calling the local counties and physically entering in those numbers. The internet wasn't that robust at the time. <laughs> and college football scores, like we were calling the press boxes for high school and getting those um, numbers. And so I would do sports on the, on the weekends. I would edit all my own pieces and just beg them to put them on TV. And then also just beg the bosses to let me go be a news reporter and not to bore you with the details, but slowly, but surely I moved myself up the ladder. And then from there I went to, um, Denver, Colorado. And then I went to Dallas as a freelancer working at CBS 11. And I was just done with news. Like I just felt, I got really tired of covering uh, tragedies and knocking on uh, grieving mother's doors. And I just, I needed a break from it. And I went back to Carol D. News Radio Tenacity to do news, but in a radio capacity. And they were looking for a female sports talk host. They didn't say implicitly female, but they were looking to diversify um, and I, I talk pretty openly about this. It's hard when you get a job based on something because the expectation is so high for you and people are already expecting you to fail. And so that was a bit of a challenge, but it was sort of a baptism by fire. Sports talk four hours a day, five days a week, 10 to two Dallas Cowboy station. I mean, we had Jerry Jones on that was on FM. So we were one of five to be the fan. Um, and we got better, uh, I, I'm proud of like my growth by year two, but by that point we had a new news director, a new programming director, and he made a change. And from there I went back to CBS 11 where I was doing news. I did sports again. And then ESPN called, I did Longhorn Network. Um, they made cuts to the newsroom. So they didn't re-up me. And then I got really lucky. I was about to go to the golf channel and uh, interviewed for the NFL network job that Maria Taylor told me she was turning down and using as leverage for ESPN. And lo and behold, I've been at the network ever since. So very long story, but I always, um, I always, when I mentor my young kids in the business, I think people think it's just so easy to get into this. And I always put up a whiteboard and just show them the sort of peaks and valleys. And I just tell people to hang with it. And if you're not getting the job that you want, uh, hang in there because every single job along the way certainly has helped me uh, do what I do now. And once you get to a certain level, you're not allowed to make mistakes because there's not many other places for you to go. Um, so I'm very, very grateful that 
my dream was delayed. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes I do find myself wanting to go back to news. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that's a phenomenal answer. I mean, it is, it is glaringly obvious that you live and breathe this stuff kind of in any capacity. You bounce around and I think that's probably been beneficial, right? I mean, getting a taste of kind of all of these elements, you mentioned, you know, college football versus the NFL. I'm sure having, you know, those two entities in, in your background has been very, very positive for you, especially with, you know, dealing with how this NFL is getting younger and younger and the college football game is becoming so much more like the NFL game or maybe vice versa. I, we we got to talk Dallas Cowboys here a little bit, right? And you mentioned news fatigue in your career. I, I cover 15 sports as much as possible. Oh. And I, I do what I can, you know, to really bounce around and not stay on one element. But I feel like I've been covering Dallas Cowboys contracts every single day of my life for the past five years. Uh, how do you, how do you deal with this? Because, you know, I, the Zeke Elliott contract, I feel like it was a discussion point for seven months. And obviously Dak is going on two years now and, and now there's no end in sight. So, I, I mean, how is it covering the Dallas Cowboys? Do you just get used to it? I mean, it's so different than like a New York or an L.A., because everything's sort of so focused on this one team, but what what is it what is it like to be following the Dallas Cowboys and really this you know the money side of it so much so heavily? I mean, look at our network and the attention to coverage that we have for the Cowboys during training camp, and even when they're in eight and eighteen. In fact, we probably cover them even more when they're imploding. Um, yes, I call it the golden handcuff. It's the glamour beat for sure. Um, I think given what I've told you and sort of the, the, all the, the balancing I've always done, I would probably be bored if I went to another market. Although like I did Thursday night football, uh, Carol, I did, it was Jacksonville, Miami. And I was so excited. My boss was like, you're just so amped. I'm like, it's just new storylines. Yeah. You know, I like love digging into this young roster that no one's talking about. And there's a lot of these like stories that I don't get to tell because I feel like the Dallas, I don't tell a lot of stories. I'm telling you a lot of news. And so as a reporter, that can be maddening sometimes, but I love it because I'm always on my toes. In fact, what was it? Um, a couple of months ago, what was the story? Ezekiel Elliott, I didn't sleep. That was a, like, I told Ian, Ian and I were working closely on that one. I was like, I'm not going to bed. Like, I don't believe that this thing's done. I don't believe that they're, um, they're, they're going to start the season with Zeke. I just don't see it. And I stayed up, and I remember sending a text message to a source at 4 a.m., and it was done, and me and Ian just, like, putting it out, you know? And, like, I've been working on that story for months. And so, like, you know, it, it's no different than for uh, people that are in business. Like, when you've been working on a deal for months, like, you want to close that deal. Like, you don't want someone else to come in with a better proposal or to hijack all the work you've put into this. So, you know, you just don't stop. And like, I just get such an adrenaline rush out of some of that. And especially being able, again, to go and tell you the story behind it, like what was going on. And, and there's actually a, a fascinating layer to that story that I'll, I'll get to in a bit that I actually haven't shared yet on TV. But um, it's they, they have such a flair for drama in Dallas. And Jerry has admitted it. Like the Earl Thomas discussion for, you know, weeks, I knew for a that 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 was not going to happen and, and you have to walk cowboys twitter off the ledge all the time and you like you're the wet blanket to them like why aren't we getting these you know these big players why aren't we spending this money and i'm like obviously you can speak to this back me up they can't spend the money and i would submit that this dax contract is going to get even trickier this offseason given the fact that you've had 10 players starters not just players starters that have gone on ir this year yeah you had a hard time assembling a championship team and paying your quarterback last offseason. How are you going to do that now, specifically when you have to address this offensive line? I saw it coming down the pipe last year. I said it was going to be a problem. They tried to address it in the draft. We'll see if, like, maybe this is a good thing that, like, Terrence Still and Brandon Knight and Connor McGovern, which we haven't seen much of, um, Connor Williams, maybe these growing pains are going to be good for these guys. It's giving them meaningful reps. But I look at that position. I look at the defensive line that they, I mean, it's the Joe McCoy injury, the Tristan Hill. That was, that was painful. And then it's Mike linebacker, not just your starting late Vanderesh, but then your backup, Sean Lee gets injured. Like that was insane. And then your two starting corners on IR, and then you never address your safety position. So 
I think it's completely plausible for both sides that we could see that tagged again next year, even though it's $37 million And what would his cap hit be? You're the number guy. Yeah, it'd be that, which is tough, especially if the cap's going to yeah. drop, right? I mean, that's going to be the storyline is can they even afford the tag if they go that route? And so, and then, so then you go back to the table and you're like, all right, Dak. And then again, we can, we can explore this. And I'm asking you this question because you guys are smarter than me in these respects. You go to him for a deal, and maybe this is where the Cowboys and Jerry alluded to it. He said, these are unprecedented times that call for unprecedented things. I think that was his quote. I'm paraphrasing. Is this him saying, I'm finally going to give you the four-year and up the five-year deal you want? Maybe I can give you more guaranteed money? I don't know. I'd read that. I'd read that exactly the opposite, Jane. I'd read that as we need our players to play ball, (laughs) right? We need we need Dak Prescott to take the discount because the whole league's going to take a discount, right? Or can they? Let me ask you this: Can they give him more guaranteed money, but extend that deal five years and then kick that his APY down the line? So we're saying like third, fourth, fifth year is when we start seeing that kick up. So it gives them a little time to breathe, but they're able to give him more guaranteed money if that doesn't affect the cap. So that's the deal that Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes signed, where basically it looks incredible on paper, but nuts and bolts of the next two seasons are really basic, really team-friendly. My guess is that had to happen two years ago for Dak Prescott. I mean, he's 27 now, going on 28. Um, He's been through the ringer. You know, a fourth-round rookie contract just you know doesn't have the weight that Mahomes and Watson had in their rookie contracts. So he's coming from a, a, a lower spot. But it's funny, and I, you know, I don't know how far back you can kind of reference, but you know, this is not new for Jerry Jones. Tony Romo, right, was absolute bottom of the barrel, undrafted contract. He did slow play Romo. I mean, he did give him a one-year contract after a really strong season, before giving him his first extension, and then he he did right by him after that with a even longer extension in 2013. But there was that transitional year with Tony Romo that basically had to say, I'm not, I just don't know if I can do this. And that's, that's what this year felt like on the franchise tag. Jerry saying, you know, you're a fourth round pick. Do I really want to do this? Do I really want to go $120 million guaranteed on you? To me, there had to be something. It couldn't just be he ran out of cash. You know, it couldn't be that because otherwise the defense would have been addressed as well. And you mentioned just how decimated that's been. And it's really the, the calling card of this team right now. So while I had heard that, look, they're all in on Dak, they were all in enough to not give him an offer that was disrespectful. In other words, that's true. 35 million APY. um, And I was told anywhere between 85 and 90 guaranteed was what he left on the table. Now his agent and I have gone round and round and Todd France and I admittedly have a little bit of a contentious relationship. And Dak Prescott himself has even reached out to me and disputed some of the facts of that reporting, but wouldn't clarify what. Um, but he did at least try at the, at the, you know, the 11th hour to try and get something done. Didn't happen. So I believe that the Cowboys thought well enough of him to pay him right there about Russell Wilson, APY, and Jared Goff guaranteed. But to your point, I know that there were some questions within the building, like, is Dak our guy? Mm-hmm. Is Dak our guy? And with a new coach that hasn't spent any time with them, especially with COVID, do you go all in on this guy if he's not a good fit for Mike, who you've just signed as, as your as your head coach? So I think those were all questions. Plus, it was like he hadn't won the NFC Championship yet. But I, I do understand fans' ire and analysts' ire when you look at the fact that he paid Dak two years early. He paid Demarcus Lawrence. This is a franchise that's been known to overpay for years, and the right. one guy that does everything right on and off the field, you can't get him done. The most important um, position, <laughs> right? And he's been such a leader. I mean, to me, he's everything you want in a guy. Like, you'd be hard pressed to find another guy like him in the draft. Although I would argue that Ben DiNucci is very intriguing. And so here's where I, I think things get things get very interesting for Dak. Andy Dalton, I think, stands to, again, I don't want to misquote numbers. You know the numbers really well. It's, what, $7 million what he can make up to this year? Yep, max, yep. Okay. So you're looking at the $7 million, and you've got this young Ben DiNucci uh, and then Garrett Gilbert, who, of course, they just signed to your practice squad. Let's say Andy Dalton gets them to the postseason, which would be remarkable given 
all of the injuries that I've described, but they're getting a lot of these guys back here in the next couple of weeks. And this NFC East is pretty terrible, right? <laughs> and we don't know, since it's such an injury-heavy year, we don't know what some of these other teams are going to look like in the NFC, right? So let's assume Andy Dalton does something crazy like that. Then Danucci is really kind of shining, too, in this backup bullet camp. The Cowboys may sit there and go, maybe this Ben kid is like two or three years away. We re-sign Andy Dalton with something. Yep. Maybe he starts for us next year. We let him and Ben compete. But Ben is going to be a lot cheaper for us the next couple of years. And then think of the, the pieces we could put around Ben. I'm not saying Ben's your guy. But I'm saying Ben's been the most impressive backup they've had back there or that they've invested in a long time. And that's a Mike McCarthy thing. That's a Mike McCarthy believing in investing in your quarterback room. And so then I think he put Dak in a very uh, precarious situation. And as much as I would say the Cowboys are going to do right by him and they said that on the radio, a lot of things can happen between now and April. And I just think that it's, it's going to – I don't think they're necessarily worried about a, a PR concern or, like, losing fans over it, right, especially if the fans get Andy Dalton to, to do something special for them. They parted ways with guys we didn't see happening. Like Tony Romo thing to this day was still shocking to me that they let Tony Romo walk when he was healthy and didn't let him compete. And if you look back on that year when they went 13 and three and you talked to any player in that locker room, that was the right decision. I mean, the guys completely bought into to Tony. So that doesn't surprise me, but I just, I think that he lost any leverage that he had. I mean, he was 1200 yards away from breaking Peyton Manning's single season passing record. Not, I mean, that doesn't help when your record as a team sucks, but in terms of the stat box, he was having a hell of a year. I always, I keep joking that I think Drew Brees is not for long in New Orleans. What if the boy from hot Louisiana gets the money that he seeks in New Orleans and Sean Payton and Dak Prescott go and get themselves a Super Bowl together? Jane, there's so many teams that would be in on Dak Prescott. And, and look, you mentioned, you know, Dallas just replacing him from within. You let Dak Prescott walk, you get yourself a nice compensatory draft pick. There's a lot of reasons yeah. not to do not to do 120 million guaranteed. You know what I mean? So uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. And oh, by the way, the, the team to watch in reference to all this is the, is the Patriots, because if Cam Newton works out on a minimum salary for a, you know a former MVP, which is what Dak was on, on pace to become, he was going to be he, he was going to be an MVP mm-hmm. candidate with these stats. And all of a sudden, you know, two years later, Cam Newton's making a million dollars. And if he's going to take that team to the postseason, all bets are off now. Because now we're going to have not only Dak, but, you know, maybe Matthew Stafford, Matt Ryan, this whole gigantic list of veteran savvy quarterbacks that could hit the open market next offseason. And everybody's price is going to drop. So so it's uh, I I, I, I hate it for Dak. And I know a lot of people like we're burning Ed Warder for bringing it up. Um, right after the injury, and, and perhaps the timing wasn't right, but it's an absolutely fair discussion and one we're absolutely having here in Dallas. And when I saw the whole thing go down, I what I love about Dak is the fact that he always bets on himself, right? He's done that his whole career. And I think it's one thing to bet on yourself. It's another to bet against this game. And it's the brutality of it at, t- at times. And I just, I hated it for him because it's almost like you could see this thing coming from a mile away. Um, I remember on our podcast just a few weeks ago, I was sort of joking with my co-host Bobby Belt. I said, if I'm Dak, I might end up with like plantar fasciitis or something, put myself on, on the bench for a bit, like elf on a shelf, me like Epsom salt bath, Andy, you go in, I'm protecting my body. You said this before the injury? Oh, no. Yes. And I feel like I put it out there in the world, but I was more looking at that offensive line was going to get him killed. I mean, his his pressure rate was the highest of his career this year, and he wasn't taking as many sacks because he was getting the ball out quicker than he ever has this year. I think it was like 2.92 seconds from um, Master Crow. But you can only do that for so long. I just didn't think it was going to happen on just some innocuous like quarterback run. Um, and I certainly didn't think or ever imagine a situation where it would be the severity of that injury. I just, it literally gutted me and just, you know, as a journalist, you're of course supposed to be objective oh. and, and report the news, but you also get to know these guys and knowing his story and knowing who he is as a person and the way he's handled himself 
people are all pointing fingers at the organization. I point fingers at his agent. I also point fingers at the Cowboys for not getting this done two years ago. So yes. I think there's two people at fault as you're passing blame. Um, you know, I passed blame on his agent because his agent didn't pick up the phone from the franchise tag to the deadline. I mean, it was Dak that picked up the phone. Um, and I, I just, every deal that's gotten done in Dallas that was contentious, I keep going back to DeMarcus Lawrence's cancer picked up the phone. Um, Rocky Arsenault, yeah. Zeke's agent, picked up the phone. I I think some egos got in the way here, and they're you know that game of Footloose. I don't know if you watch Footloose. They're yeah. on the tractors, and they're like they're playing chicken. Yeah. That's what this thing felt like this summer. And I just I hate it for the player because as a person, he just deserved better the way he carries himself and the way he handled himself. And so I just and given the year that he's had, it's just you, you hate it for him. And and I hope that I'm wrong, and I hope you know the the Cowboys figure this thing out, but. If I'm a Cowboys man, I would brace for the the possibility of if you just look at the numbers and again you're the numbers guy, you explain it to him. If you look at the numbers, it's it's a hard sell um, franchise tag and long term deal. There's no question. I have two more questions, then we'll get you out of here, Jane. Um, sure. You mentioned the offensive line, the defensive line, the secondary, the linebackers. Um, <laughs> you know, pretty important. Not as important as the quarterback, and we've we've talked about that enough, but. I guess the question is this, and I don't know if you can answer it, but but do your best. Regardless of of what they do with Dak, is this team even ready for a, a long term quarterback contract, or is this team going backwards because of you know the Tyron Smith situation, because Sean Lee and those linebackers don't aren't, you know aren't getting any better or younger because they have to literally rebuild that secondary next year via the free agency and the draft. I, you know, I'm not sure they have enough draft and free agent capital to make this team, you know, a top echelon team in the, in the NFL again. So are they going backwards before our eyes, or is this just going to be, you know, we're going to ride this thing out and hope it works? It's a great question. I mean, I think they've got the talent on this roster. A lot of these young guys, even the ones that have gotten injured, they're just not living up to expectations. And now that you're seeing them not live up to expectations under two coaching staff, you know, a lot of people want to point the fingers at Rod Marinelli and Jason Garrett, but I, I now you're seeing with Mike McCarthy and Mike Nolan, and granted, you can throw COVID out there and an and ability to gel with a new coaching staff so early. I get all that, but these guys, like Xavier Woods just hasn't shined in the safety role. Just hasn't happened. Um, so you're absolutely going to have to address that. I mean, this team is realizing how much they really miss Jeff Heath. Um, Byron Jones, at corner, right? Yeah. Um, so, and I don't know what they're going to do with Shido next year. I don't know if if Jordan is, is still the guy. I, they've got they've got a lot to do. And, and here's the other thing that we've got to talk about. I'm talking to some of the scouts. With COVID and with guys opting out and then wanting to opt back in and games getting delayed or seasons getting delayed until uh, the spring, and not being able to be on campus and talk to those guys that you normally would. Like, I'm not talking about the head coach or teachers or counselors or strength and conditioning. I mean, I'm talking like, Brett Lewis brought it up on our podcast the other day. Like, you talk to the film guy, like the guy that's running tape, because he knows how long that guy's been watching film. And, you know, then you're asking questions. All right, well, who had the clicker? In other words, that kid says, oh, I do so much film study, and I bring so-and-so with me. Well, who holds the clicker? And so – those are questions that, again, kind of like with my job, you're not getting the answers you typically would get by just being there and being in person and talking with people and connecting. And so I think talent evaluation is going to be hard next year. Um, scouts have told me that they're busier than they've ever been uh, trying to like sort of get through all that. So I just think it's going to be very interesting. I, I guess the long-winded answer, and I've given a lot of them today, and I apologize, is there's just so much uncertainty as it relates to the Cowboys this season, as it relates to scouting, as it relates to Dak Prescott and and where this team is at. Because if you look at this team heading into training camp, you're like, wow, this team is close. And, you know, they're the strongest in the NFC. And look at how stacked they are. They've got all this depth on the defensive line, the offensive line, uh, you know, at running back, at tight end. And then, I mean – 
now you're going with, you know, fourth and fifth guy on your offensive line, guys you haven't even heard about in the football field. It's it, it's tricky. So it, it, I think it depends on how quickly some of these guys come back from injury, how healthy they return. Um, will some of these guys start living up to expectations? Will they buy into some of these schemes? Will the coaching staff change those schemes? I think there's a lot of question marks as it relates to this team, to be honest. Yeah, I don't think winning the NFC East is going to carry much clout this year. You know what I mean? If that's if that's yeah. the extent of what they do and they're a first-round exit, you know, I don't think you can really hang your hat on anything in 2020. So I don't think it changes the team-building process. I'm, I love that you mentioned the upcoming draft, and we've talked about it a little on the show, but it, it's it, you know, it bears repeating because the cap is going down. We don't know how much, but certainly it's going down. And because college football is in flux, I mean, you don't even, you don't even mention the, the chance for injury because of the bouncing around in these, in these weird training camps that college football has gone through. But you're right. The scouting is going to be so difficult and maybe so trial and error for this upcoming NFL draft in 2021. And because teams are going to have to offload players because of cap situations, I, I think it's going to be a trade frenzy. I really do. I think you're going to be trading high, high draft picks where you would never do that in the past because there are those unknowns, because you need to acquire game-ready players right now, maybe on a current roster somewhere else. So that's what I'm looking forward to is maybe 10 to 15% elevated trades in February and March, whenever that becomes available. Um, but And that could benefit the Cowboys, because if they are looking to flip and upgrade in certain positions, they do have game-ready players that other teams could benefit from. So that's something to keep an eye on there. But here's what I got to get you out on. I just, you know, I, I would say just that I, I would say it's just it's crazy to me because since my fifth season with the NFL Network covering this team, I started covering them uh, back in 2003, and then I was back here 2011-13 covering them. And Jerry Jones has been talking about this window closing for years, more so in recent years as he celebrated his 78th birthday yesterday. Oh. I uh, he pulled the trigger. Yeah. On Mike McCarthy and went all in yes. with the hope of he's right there. Like we've got the team. The only thing that's holding us back is the coaching. That was truly the wisdom in the building was the only thing that's holding us back is the coaching. And with you saying that and you talk about like, you know, all that's been, and I agree with you. Um, Jerry's going to have to be forced to be patient again. And it's just for a guy, say what you want about Jerry Jones, right? I have never met someone that is so passionate about their business. He could have made so much more money in the oil and gas business and had less of the headaches, right? But this is not only like if you, I pulled him aside at Combine in front of a bunch of coaches because they, all the coaches, he's a rock star at training camp. People are shouting for Jerry. They want him to sign the, like he literally, when Des left, there wasn't really any superstars left on the team. I mean, you had Dak, but for the most part, they were shouting, Jerry, Jerry. And then you saw him in New Orleans for Sunday Night Football a couple of years back, and he's on Bourbon Street with, you know, a, you know, a glass of probably Johnny Walker Blue, and he's walking down. It was like the sea is parting, you know? Like, he's a rock star. And so there's some celebrity that comes with it. But when I pulled him aside at Combine to talk to a couple of these coaches that were, like, dying to meet Jerry Jones, he gets so passionate and emotional about just talking about football. I mean, this man lives and breathe it. And I've never seen somebody put so much into it. In fact, I made the, the mistake of calling him a de facto GM a couple of years ago on mm. NFL Network. And I was not so subtly reminded that not only is he the GM and has been since 1989, but he was a chairperson of my network. So I enjoyed that. But he takes this stuff seriously. And he does know that like, when he would come on our radio show, his sense of player personnel is unreal. It is and his energy and his enthusiasm for what he's doing is unmatched. I, I'm slowing down as I approach 40 next month. This guy's 78 and literally outpaces me. I mean, he's setting PBRs every year. But I just, when I think about all of this, I, I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, I just don't know how much patience this guy has left. And he jokes that he made a deal with the devil for those Super Bowls back in the 90s, and he's been trying to renegotiate ever since. And I truly believe that that is Jerry every night trying to negotiate <laughs> with the devil again, um, because it, it it is very very frustrating when you look at some of the effort that the, the fans won't give him credit for. But that is a guy that is really trying to go all in. And again, people are like, well, if he goes all in, he goes and gets Earl Thomas. 
How would Earl Thomas no. have helped this team at all this year? You would have literally given up something, had to overpay this guy when you're still looking to pay your quarterback, and one guy does not fix your secondary. And by the way, I'm not convinced he wouldn't have hurt already a lack of leadership in that locker room. That's it, that's it right so there. That's it right there. Every yes. time I hear people with the Earl Thomas thing, I just want to like, you know, like <laughs> the definition of insanity is doing things. I, I just, every time I go on the, on, on the internet, I'm like, why am I even trying to like make this point to fans? Like it's never, ever going to work for them, but they just, they're so angry at Jerry that they, he didn't go get Earl Thomas. I'm like, Earl Thomas can't play offensive line. Earl Thomas can't play corner. Earl Thomas can't play defensive line. Like, Stop. Right. Yes. All right. Perfect transition to my final question for you. Jerry, the GM, do you think, knowing what we know now, like, you know, we're, we're kind of assessing that maybe this window might be closing and, and we'll see what happens with that in, in accordance to that. Does Jerry, the GM, regret this Zeke Elliott deal? Great question. Um, I will tell you that I have talked to a couple of coaches in the league about Ezekiel Elliott specifically. And I've had one tell me the first thing they would do if they were ever to coach in Dallas is they'd trade him. Sounds harsh, right? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what you would get for an Ezekiel Elliott. I I would say the fans right now are frustrated with Zeke because they're not seeing some of the things that I see him doing out there, which he's really helping with pass protection. Yeah. Like his yards after catch are ridiculous. I mean, this guy really like it's unfortunate that he doesn't have the Ghani numbers, but they've also moved away from the run game. Yes, this is not Mike McCarthy's so thing. Yes. Yes. Right. And so I don't know, like I, I think it's unfair to criticize Zeke right now. Uh I will argue that just from the contracts that have been done, they were so hell bent. The company line was Todd Gurley does not deserve Todd Gurley money and we're not like, paying Zeke. And then they went and did it at the last minute. But I think that contract taught them what that front office has been trying to teach Jerry, which is we are not going to overpay players. And I think that's going to be the last one that you see that happen with. I think, like, if you look at the Jalen contract, you look at the Marcus contract, there's a lot of ruthless teams in this league. I mean, look at Bill Belichick. There are a lot of ruthless teams as it relates to how they spend their money, and it works for them. And the Cowboys have been, you know, it's funny when they say they don't back their players. This team backs their players more than any team that I've seen in the league to a fault. And I just look at some of the contracts, like just even in the, like the, I always feel like we forget like 2010 to like 2015. We were faulting them even in, in the, even in the early 2000s for hanging on to some of these like aging, like veteran players. I think it was 2014, 15, 16. We finally started seeing them transition to a new era, but they were holding on and like getting these, like the Brandon Carr $50 million free agent deal. Right. They're finally getting a little bit more ruthless. And I would point to chief ruthless is Stephen Jones. Stephen Jones and I think Will McClay and those guys have finally said to Jerry, like, we have got to do a better job with how we spend our money. And you may not like it as a fan, but you're going to like it when they finally are able to assemble a team that makes sense. Um, and so to answer again your question, a long-winded answer, I think in hindsight, they probably regret that contract. But given the situation that you were in, especially if Dak had to com- continue playing with that offensive line, you wanted a guy like Ezekiel Elliott there. And Tony Pollard has certainly shown you flashes, and I, I think he's a really intriguing running back. Um, I don't know if he was there yet for you to move on. And then I think they brought in what Alfred Morris, and he was the other guy that brought in in his absence. Um, well, when he was injured, they had a, a McFadden. Right. It took McFadden and, Al- and Alfred Morris really to give you the thing that Zeke did. Zeke's a beast. Um, and so I think from an emotional component, he really is sort of the heartbeat for this team. But I think if you were to trade right now, and I don't know what if he even has a trade clause, if they could do that right now. I don't know if they can. Um, given the sentiment of the fans and if the Cowboys were able to get something for him, I, I don't, I, I think now would be the time to do it. Um, but they went ahead, they, they, you know, they paid him his bill. Rocky Arsenal did a great job of, of getting that done. Um, but I think if they had to go back and look at that, 
they would have paid Dak and waited on Zeke as they should have. Yeah, I think that was the right move. You know, Zeke's the right player. This is just the wrong price. And even if it's if it's the right price, even if a player like this should get that money, it was the wrong time to do it. <laughs> so well, one, one of those Gurley. three things, like, right? Look at Todd Gurley and what happened with his contract. I mean, if you look at a lot of these running backs, yeah. um, who was the other one? Um, Chargers, oh. Melvin Gordon. Yeah. The, the running back market after Zeke, I think a lot of teams aren't going to pay. Now, Alvin Kamara, I don't know where Alvin's money was. But I, I want to. I would. I would argue that you're not going to see a lot of teams overpay a running back. Moving. Like again, like I feel like that argument was such a strong one, and then you've had examples after it that have really said to teams like, "We're not overspending on a running back. It's not happening." Yeah, and 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 I I hate to trash them because I've been throwing them through the weeds for years here. These the running back devaluation process. But it, again, you can pay Dak. Or excuse me, you can pay Zeke, but not unless you've already paid Dak or or you've got a rookie quarterback on a four year rookie contract. You just can't have one impede the other, and that's what we're that's what happened. Zeke Elliott's contract, and then of course Amari Cooper. You know, in the middle there, those two pieces blocked Dak Prescott from getting the exact contract he wanted. Well, and see, I would also make the argument I wouldn't have paid Amari Cooper. I mean, I Michael Gallup to me was really coming on. And you see these dynamic catches that he makes. This kid just wants to get better week in and week out. And I'm not saying that's the case with Amari Cooper, but I don't know if I would have paid Amari Cooper. Again, I would have taken care of I, – I when I was asked on Good Morning Football two years ago, I was asked, how do you see the contracts going? And I was like, oh, Dak's going to get done. It's going to go Dak, Amari, Zeke. And it ended up being Zeke, Amari, Dak. Like, I had – I literally would never have seen it go down the way that it did. I think where this is where it hurt Dak. Dak, again, is so incredible in the way that he handles himself and the way he's a leader. If Dak would have held out, yep, he probably would have gotten it done. They but took advantage of it. You're right. As a person, and it bit him. And I hate that for him. And as much as people say that like Dak is so loyal to this team, there's a part of me that hopes that he remembers some of these things and he thinks of himself moving forward. In other words, go get you the money that you deserve. Like you deserve to go get that money. And I think it hurt him too, talking about that money in a pandemic. You know, a lot of people just, Oh, he's so greedy. I'm like, he's not greedy. Like you guys didn't say Deshaun Watson was greedy. Like seriously. And so again, it comes with putting the star on your helmet, but I just think if things had been different, if Dak had gone and, and held out, he would have gotten that contract. But that's not who he is. And I hate that doing things the right way is what got him in this got him in this predicament. Doing things the right way was trusting his agent, trusting the Cowboys in the process, and trusting in himself and buying into himself. And unfortunately, all of those things bit him. And that's what I think made that injury so hard for me to watch. How much is that fan base going to lose their minds when Dak is the starting quarterback for the 49ers next year? 49ers? I'm telling you, the Saints would be an incredible... You're right. Indy, the Colts, right? Yeah. These are great teams. There are so many teams, and and I've got to think that if you, and especially the creativity, like with the 49ers, be very, very intriguing. Um, Mm -hmm. But I just, I think of the, the Louis, I mean, hot Louisiana, the hot Louisiana boy with, you know, some of the weapons that you have, like the Michael Thomas and the Alvin Kamara and the Jason Hill, if Jason Hill is even going to stick around. Um, You're right. I, I think New Orleans is going to be so intriguing. And think of the poetry here. Franchise tags like Drew Brees, yeah. injured like Drew Brees, resurrected and becomes literally the face of the franchise moving forward. Uh, it would be remarkable. But I got to tell you, if I... Dak just feels like he's still, he just, he grew up wanting to be a Dallas Cowboy. He loved that team. He loved that locker room. He loved living in Dallas. There's a lot that comes with putting the star on the helmet. I got to think for all the reasons he didn't do that, that deal, maybe after the injury, he does the deal in Dallas, no matter what that deal looks like. You can find her on the NFL Network on the sidelines of the Dallas Cowboys. She's at Slater NFL on Twitter, and she's co-host of the Boys and Girl podcast. Jane, thanks so much for doing this. 
Of course. Like I said, sorry for the long-winded answers. I could literally talk Cowboys all day. It's what I do. That is why you were here. We loved every second of it. Thanks again so much. Stay safe. Thank you. Bye. All right, that was Jane Slater again at Slater NFL on Twitter. She's a great follow. She does great video hits. She's uh she's been all over the place. I've seen her everywhere, so it's been a thrill to get her on here. Okay, my thanks to the Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash spotrack for forty percent off this year's subscription. My name is Mike Gennetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spot Trek Podcast. 